let's turn our attention now to Holy Scripture, and we'll be in James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. And as you're turning there, let me bring you up to speed. This is a letter written by the ancient Apostle James to a group of scattered Christians, and he is seeking to pastor them afar and encourage them in a variety of ways. But this particular passage is very unique in nature because it is not addressed to that group of scattered Christians uh, specifically. They are included by proxy. And the way that James frames what he has to say today, and this is in line with what some of the Old Testament prophets do, is he actually writes this very scalding rebuke to a group of non-Christians that would have been in this area, uh, a group of wealthy landowners, uh, and he rebukes them and warns them of coming judgment. And so that is the focus of this passage, but then it also serves his primary audience in two different ways. It reminds them, those who were being oppressed by these wealthy landowners, that God has heard their cry and he is going to bring judgment upon their oppressors and he is going to vindicate their cause eventually. And then he also serves them by warning them, listen, you do not want to get entranced by the world the way that these folks have and you don't want to be on the path of suffering these kinds of consequences. So it's a very interesting passage for us in the way that he frames us, uh, frames it up for us, but it is one that we absolutely need to hear. So let me pray and ask for the Spirit's help, and we'll get right to work. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come and illuminate these texts to us. We pray that we'd be informed of the knowledge of Scripture, transformed by the renewing of our minds, conformed to the image of Christ, and recommissioned on the Great Commission. Lord, help me, frail as I am, to serve us well in this time. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Now, the way that we're going to handle this today, uh, I won't have set points like I often do, but we're going to just work our way sequentially through the passage. We're going to take a look at each one of these uh, crimes that they have committed, and James is going to illuminate four of them for us. And we're going to explain each of those crimes, make application for it, and then rinse and repeat till we get to the end, and we'll talk about how this text gets us to Jesus. So with that said, let's go ahead and jump in right here with the first one. It says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Now you may recall that phrase, come now. Uh, it, it's very similar to what we saw last week when, it, when James said, Now listen verse 13 of chapter 4, and he commands them to weep and wail. And it's an interesting set of commands there. The first one uh, describes audible weeping, uh, most likely, and the second one certainly does. And it is onomatopoeic in its nature, and it uh, the, the idea would be someone that is making some kind of, uh, you know, crazy crying and then howling sound to show forth their all-out repentance in light of the judgment that is coming upon them. So this is a very strong uh, call to these people to hear and subsequently uh, to heed uh, the, uh, what, what he has to say in light of God's coming judgment. So I think by way of application, just as we ease into this passage today, I think this needs to show us uh, how seriously God takes sin. You know, in our day and time, uh, people don't even believe in sin, even uh, in many cases. 
And that kind of cultural thinking filters its way into the church. And so when we see this and we see that that is certainly not the case and we are reminded of God's wrath and his holiness, uh, this can even be an opportunity to, 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 to cause us to evaluate ourselves and see if we are in Christ, but then also to be thankful for what Jesus has done for us that saves us from God's wrath. So even a simple verse like that in the, the, the fourth calling judgment that it uh, lends itself to points us to the gospel. Now, it is worth noting here that James is not making a blanket, indiscriminate attack on all rich people everywhere, nor is he inherently decrying uh, the inherent uh, evil of riches, couple of examples there. Uh, there have been many notable Christians that were quite wealthy, Abraham, Job, David, Josiah, Philemon, <coughs> Joseph of Arimathea, Lydia, just a few examples from the Bible, and of course there have been many other uh, Christians both in church history and alive today that have significant resources. So the, the problem is not the possessions themselves. The problem is when the possessions possess the possessor, when our stuff gets a hold of us and we anchor our hope and our, uh, our meaning and our purpose in this world instead of in the world to come. And because that is a common practice and it is a common danger, the Bible does guard us and warn us of the potential dangers of wealth. And those come up uh, everywhere in scripture. Uh, just a couple of examples here, you see this Repeatedly in the, the, the words of Jesus, Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, uh, 24, he says, No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You may also recall in Luke chapter 12, uh, when he is talking about the parable of the rich fool, Jesus says very clearly, take care and be on guard against all types of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And just a few verses later, he says, for where your treasure is, your heart will be also. And then, of course, you may also recall in Mark chapter 10, when Jesus is talking about uh, how hard it is for a rich person to get to heaven. And again, the idea there is, in many cases, the more wealth someone has, the more anchored they are to this world. The more prone they are to think that money can fix all their problems. The more prone they are to think that maybe they could even buy their way to heaven. But of course, all of that is false. So as we hear what James has to say here, he's not saying wealth in and of itself is evil, but he is saying, beware of the evil that wealth can lead you into. And certainly with these wealthy folks, it has led them to all kinds of evil. Which gets us to verses 2 and 3. And here he begins to illuminate these four crimes that he puts on display to indict these folks that are off the path. He says in verse 2, your riches have rotted. And your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. 
So the first crime that they've committed here is they have hoarded their wealth. And this is interesting for us because it's very different from how people would stack up resources today. In the ancient world here, uh, it was an agrarian culture, and so there were three standard sources of wealth, harvested grain, clothing, and precious metals and jewels. And what he's getting at here is that you, you have so much grain set aside, far more than you need, far more than you can use, that it has literally begun to rot because you have so much that, that, that it just sits there. And so that's a problem. And then second, these garments, again, this sounds strange for us today, but part of the ways that people held their wealth back then was in these clothes that they would change throughout the day. It also uh, communicated the type of status to those around them. And they would store their wealth in these garments. And he's saying, listen, you know, you've got so many of these and they're so stacked up that the moths have come in and they've destroyed them. And then finally, this final piece here of gold and silver corroding, that is an interesting uh, one as well because gold and silver by nature, uh, they don't corrode. And so he's saying, you have so much gold and wealth that it is, this is, he's speaking almost figuratively here, that it has corroded. And now you're doing this in the place where you're sitting on this pile of money like Scrooge McDuck and everyone around you is starving to death uh, like you see in Mickey's Christmas Carol, Tiny Tim and others, Bob Cratchit. And so he's really pointing out that even this, this corrosion will rise up and testify against you because what you are doing is so ridiculous. And so I think this needs to be applied in this way. Uh, it's kind of like the first one. He's not saying in and of itself that saving is bad. Uh, <coughs> we find out that what the Bible has many good things to say about saving and storing for the future. The book of Proverbs is replete with, with uh, those scriptures. But what he is getting at here is there is a point where if you're doing all this uh, to an insane degree and you're not helping anybody else and you're not doing good with the resources that you've been given, well, that is a problem. And then also, if you were focusing it primarily upon yourself and perpetuating your own comfort and your own pleasure, he'll get back into this in a moment, then that really is a problem. And again, this lines up exactly with what Jesus said over in Matthew 6, 19. He said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. And so James bring the half-brother of Jesus. There's no mistake that he has quoted this same language that Jesus has used to make this connection. So I think in light of this truth and the one that came before it, it would be wise for us to stop and ask ourselves a few questions. The first one being, do we have the proper biblical understanding of wealth and how it is to be used and leveraged? Or are we trying to heap up for ourselves treasures on earth, or are we thinking about heaping up for ourselves treasures in heaven? Do we have the proper understanding that we are simply managers, that we are simply stewards for a temporary period of time of what ultimately belongs to God? 
Or are we guilty of the same kind of crime of hoarding that these unbelievers would have been that James is speaking against? Now, let's listen to the Holy Spirit as he works in our hearts and continues to lead us through this passage. Look at verse 4. It says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. So the second crime here is that they have defrauded their workers. And James uses this very vivid, uh, vivid imagery here to basically say these unpaid wages are screaming, they're crying out against these evil landowners, and that cry has made its way to God. And it's interesting here, the, the language that he used to, describes here, uh, to describe the Lord here, the Lord of hosts, uh, is the same language that David used when he went before Goliath. It, it shows God's strength, his greatness, that he is the Lord of many angel armies. And so it, it definitely shows that God is going to rise up and he is going to do something uh, against these people that have defrauded these workers. This is certainly also in line with what you see in Deuteronomy chapter 24, uh, where it says in verses 14 and 15, you shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy. Uh, and then also in other places in the scriptures, Leviticus 19, Proverbs 3. So paying someone what they are owed, uh, that type of justice and equity is, is a big deal in the Bible, and it needs to be a big deal to us as God's people. And this would have been immediately problematic, not just for spiritual reasons, but for practical reasons as well. Because what would have been happening at this time is the workers that are being oppressed here were living in a hand-to-mouth society. So a day, a day without wages would have been a day without food. And the, the irony here that is being juxtaposed is you have these very wealthy landowners that are sitting in their houses, you know, cheers to each one with their wine and so on and so forth. And, the, and their workers who are amassing this wealth for them are literally dying in the streets while they sit there uh, high on the hog. And so when you take all this together, you really see why this would raise the ire of God and bring his judgment upon them. But again, I think the application for us needs to be that we don't need to do what these people are doing. We want to do the opposite. If we've got somebody working for us, we want to make sure that they get paid. We don't want to try to stiff them out of whatever they're due. Uh, if we're in a position of being a boss or someone in charge of payroll or something like that, we want to make sure that the wages that we pay our workers are equitable, and we want to make sure that those people are taken care of in a timely manner. We want to uh, lead and help with human flourishing around us. We don't want to cause greater stress and turmoil and trouble in, in the lives of other people. Now, verse 5. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. So the third crime that is mentioned here is that they have lived in luxury and self-indulgence. And what he's getting at here, these uh, words that are used here, they're, they're synonyms, but there's a little bit of difference between them. Uh, the first word that is used refers to a soft, 
enervating luxury that tends to demoralize. And the second word describes an extravagant and wasteful self indulgence. And, and one commentator points out it, it seems to almost have a, an immoral association with it as well. And when it says here they fattened their hearts, that uh, one writer points out could be also thought of like this. They've lived delicately, a soft and pampered life. And this phrase here, self-indulgence, means literally taking your pleasure, which evokes a wasteful living like the prodigal son. It is conspicuous consumption. John Calvin said it like this. He said, not for nothing does the Lord by his prophets throw sharp words at those who sleep on ivory couches, who pour on precious unguents, who entrance their palates with sweetness, sweetness to the notes of the zither, to all intents like fat cattle in rich pastures. All this is said to make us keep perspective in all of our creature comforts, because self-indulgence wins no favor with God. So when we think about applying this today, I think we need to do that in a way that is always suspicious of our own selves and our own motives. We talked about this a little bit last week. Now, I don't think that the, the takeaway from this is that, okay, we have to sell every piece of comfortable furniture that we have, and from now on, it's, you know, Dick's Sporting Goods long chairs in the living room, and, uh, you know, we drive cars that never work, and it, I, don't, I don't think that's where we need to go with this. But I do think that we always do need to be a little bit side-eye when we are constantly stacking up things that make us more comfortable and we never give a thought to anyone else around us. We don't ever think about the people around us that are in legitimate need while we just seek to make ourselves greater and greater and greater. That is the kind of thing that God would be speaking against here. Luxury and self indulgence. Now, I also don't think that this means that uh, we don't take a vacation, that we don't take time off. Of course, the Bible talks about rest and so on and the Sabbath and, and all those things. But again, there is that tipping point where if, if all of life, life is rest and we're never laboring and we're never doing anything for anybody else, again, we are on the path that these folks would have been far down. And we don't want to be about that. We want to be about following Jesus and loving others and, and, and seeking to love our neighbor as ourselves. So again, we would be wise and circumspect to hear and listen because we don't want to be even in this way in a hint. Now, let's get to the final one here, crime number four. And it comes to us to, from verse six. And he says this, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. So that fourth crime is literally the murder of innocent men. And I'll go ahead and tell you, there's a little bit of debate here on if we're talking about actual murder, some people say yes, or if we're talking about judicial murder. And what that means uh, it, it, in this context would actually be the depriving of someone to make a living. And the idea here is that the landed gentry, uh, the folks that he'd be talking to here, controlled the courts at this time, and the poor could not oppose them in any way because they owned the system, so to speak. And so whether he's talking about uh, taking away their livelihood and, and, and not compensating them, or he's talking about literally killing them, 
Either way, it's bad and it is deplorable and it is to be avoided. And so I think the application for us here, the first one is so obvious, it's almost comical. It's don't kill other people, okay? We, we should know that by now. The, even the American courts are against that. But it is one of the Ten Commandments. We need to value life. We need to care for other people, so on and so forth. But then beyond that, we need to seek to treat everyone uh, equitably. And we also need to seek to, to help lift them up instead of push them down. So we, when we think about this, this gets into some of the legislation that we might support. Uh, and then also just, just making sure, again, if we have people that are in our care, uh, we want to take care of them as best we can. We want to look out for them and make their burden uh, appropriate and not make it any heavier. So when you take all this together, this is clearly, this is a hard text. Uh, it's hard in the sense of what it says. It's also hard to some degree, and you think about how for us to, to pull it together for our own days. But in the midst of this, it points us to the Lord Jesus. And I want to close today by giving just a few ways that I think that happens. The first of which would be kind of from the whole text itself. And if you go back through this and you think about this and the kind of language and the kind of rebuke and the kind of judgment <clears throat> that James forecasts against these people. It shows again what I said at the outset, that God is deadly serious about sin. He is holy. Uh, one of his characteristics, he is wrathful. And when someone is being mistreated and done wrong, and in this case, verse 6, possibly even murdered, God is not going to let that go. At some point, there will be a payday for what happened that day. And so when we look at this and we see God's wrath and his justice, that points us to Christ in a couple of different ways. Number one, if we're here and we're not yet following Jesus, I can say to you from full assurance in the Bible, you do not want to be in line for God's wrath. And your only way out is to flee to Christ. It's to turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ, his full and finished work for you. And if you confess your sins and, and turn the leadership of your life over to him, Jesus will forgive you just like he forgave me and any other Christian that's ever put their faith and trust in him. And that could be the call for some of you today who are hearing this message. Now, beyond that, for those who've already made that turn, a passage like this should well up within us great gratitude for the gospel. Because once we meet Jesus, we don't ever have to be concerned about God's wrath again. Now, are we disciplined when we disobey? Absolutely. The writer of Hebrews talks about that, that, that we are being treated as sons and as daughters, and God uses situations in our life to, to get us back on track and so on and so forth. But that's not wrath. That's fatherly discipline. Because the wrath of God was poured out and fully absorbed on, by Jesus on our behalf. He took God's wrath in our place. And that should create great gratitude. That should create great worship. That should create just almost a sense of speechlessness within us because Jesus did that for us. So that's the first way that this passage points us to Christ. It shows us our need for Jesus 
And it also shows us what Jesus has done for us. The second way that it points us to Jesus is it shows us how much we need Jesus. Part of the, the, the reason why this passage is included in the book of James, it, it, it is an encouragement for those that were being oppressed to, to say, listen, God hears you, he sees, he knows he's going to handle this. But it also shows these people, hey, you need Jesus to help you not fall into the same kind of uh, aberrant living that these folks did. But for the grace of God, you could, you could go down that path as well. And so we are reminded again that we need Jesus not just for salvation, but we need him for sanctification. We need him every day, every moment to help us not be like the people that we meet in this passage. And so that serves us in that way. And I also think about this in, in verse 6, and perhaps this is the, the most obvious. Look back at it with me. It says this, You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Friends, how can we read a verse like that and not think about the end of the life of the Lord Jesus? The ultimate righteous person. He's dragged in before all these kangaroo courts in the last few hours of his life, and exactly what happens? He is condemned, and ultimately he is murdered, and he didn't even resist. And so they are being indicted for doing this, but it reminds us of what Jesus has done for us. And friends, again, doesn't that warm your heart? Doesn't that draw you toward Christ? Doesn't that say to you, I certainly don't want to be about these other bad behaviors because look at this one who had the perfect behavior who died for me. And so as we close today, let me ask you this question. What is the Holy Spirit saying to you through this passage? Is he drawing you to the Lord Jesus to turn from your sins, to trust in Christ, to be saved today? Or is he pointing out some error, perhaps something like we've seen him in this passage? Maybe we've thought about money the wrong way. Maybe we're too anchored to this world. Maybe we've not taken care of those around us as we should. Or maybe it's something completely different. But whatever it is that the Spirit is saying to us through this passage, let's listen. Let's lean in. Let's be drawn to Jesus by the power of his word. And let's see what only God can do in our lives in response. Let me pray for us toward that end. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this word. We thank you for teaching us. And we pray and ask that you would continue to speak to us and change us. And that we would see what only you can do in our lives. In Jesus' name.